additive manufacturing, 3D printing, is actually an umbrella of technologies that create parts through an additive process. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, welcome to episode 37. Today, we're talking all about 3D printing. And I have to say, you know, including bonus episodes, we've done over 50 episodes of this podcast, and I'm surprised it's taken us this long to get to the topic of additive manufacturing. Our guest today is Greg Paulson from Zometry. Zometry is spelled X-O-M-E-T-R-Y, so it's an X, like a xylophone, not a zebra. And uh, Greg knows a lot about 3D printing. Honestly, just Google search Greg Paulson 3D printing. You'll be amazed with everything that comes up. So couldn't have picked a better guest for today. So what are the three things you can expect from today's conversation? Well, number one, of course, we're going to talk about 3D printing and additive manufacturing. We'll discuss some of the applications and industries where it's a best fit, as well as separating what's real from what is hype, so to speak. Second, we're going to talk about following your passion in your career. Throughout this conversation, I could tell how much Greg loved what he does in 3D printing, so I just had to take a couple moments to get some career advice from him. He's got some great tips. think you're going to be able to pull some good nuggets from that part of the conversation. Then finally, the third thing, we're going to talk about another field that Greg has some experience in that, let's say, aligns with the happy hour element of our show. So you're probably going to walk away with a couple drink tips as well. You can access all the resources that we discussed during this episode over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 37. That'll take you straight to the show notes page. Also, if you're loving the show, if you like this episode, if you've liked past episodes, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll take you straight there on your iPhone or on your computer, and it does not need to take that long. Leaving that five-star rating is quick, and the review can be as short as a couple sentences. Would love to hear from you. It's really what helps us make this show better and better. And with that, I think it's time to uh, get our conversation rolling today. Let's go get you introduced to Greg Paulson. All right. Our guest today is an advanced manufacturing expert and 3D printing evangelist. Having spent his career working in prototyping and no shortage of engineering leadership roles, he is now the director of application engineering at Zometry. A manufacturing as a service company that helps manufacturers turbocharge the way they make custom parts. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Paulson. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to have you here. And, uh, you know, I normally when I'm doing these interviews or prepping for them, I normally try to listen to a podcast or watch a video that my guest has been on. And I have to say you are quite the man about town because I'm normally picking between like one or two options of, you know, maybe a blog post that's been written or one podcast the person has been on. You are all over the place. Video, every 3D printing podcast out there. You get around. 
Yeah, I, it's it's pretty exciting. So, uh, Zometry, we we uh, where I work for, like we have a uh, a breadth of industry, if you will, like where mm. we we cast a very wide net, where a lot of different fields. And part of my job, uh, you know, I came on board as someone who had expertise and actually, uh, you know, I've made and used and failed and trialed and had succeeded mm-hmm. in using three D additive manufacturing for making parts, and uh, it gave a unique perspective. Uh, because I've been both the buyer and the person running the shop as as the supplier, and uh, and yeah, like we've I've been able to tell that story in many different ways, motions, and forms uh, while working here through Zometry. So it's been kind of exciting, and and I think I was telling you earlier as we were setting up. I mean, this is this is my one of my favorite things is just talking shop, like talking about like uh, you know uh, what I geek out on the most, which is this advanced manufacturing and you know just making stuff successful. Well, I'm certainly hoping to give you an opportunity to geek out today. And this is the first time we've done a 3D printing episode here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. I have no idea why it's taken us so long to make that happen. But but here we are, and I couldn't be more excited to have you as our first guest to go into it. But in Manufacturing Happy Hour fashion, there's something else I have to dive into first before we get into 3D printing. And I noticed in a past life that you are a wine educator. And, and <laughs> yeah. like I, normally I'd say, hey, explain X to us as if we're hanging out at a bar. But I, I just have to ask, how'd you get into wine? What, what were you focused on there before you got into engineering after that? Uh, so uh, that was my cool weekend college job. Uh, so nice. while, I was, while I was studying at James Madison University, um, actually myself and uh, my good friend and also a roommate at the time uh, got a gig working down in a winery uh, down in Charlottesville. So JMU is kind of in the middle of Virginia, close to where actually UVA is, and and that's wine country in Virginia there. Mm. And uh, yeah, essentially, as soon as I turned 21, I got a job at the at winery and uh, was working uh, throughout uh, the rest of my my co- time in college down there, and it was, it was really fun. And actually, it's it's helped me. You were talking about going to the, all these podcasts and things. Yeah, my job was talking to hundreds of strangers a day. You know, every you know Saturday and Sunday, every weekend, you you I go and stand in this little booth. And, you know, I'm serving wine and I'm the, I was that tasting guy, you know, the person mm-hmm. you go to and like start, you know, start with the whites, move to the reds and tell you and describe and listen to them and get their feedback and kind of understand, you know, what their interest is. And actually, I think it has significantly helped me in my engineering communication in my career is the ability to talk to people of all different backgrounds mm-hmm. and uh, change the technical level of my discussion. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed, uh, that job. And I actually had some friends who, uh, st- stayed in years after college, like working, to, uh, working that we all kind of like, we all gave each other jobs essentially when we were working down there at, uh, in the wine business. And I had some friends who just loved it so much that they were working as like a engineering consultant, but on the weekend <laughs> they were doing festivals and things. So it's, it's, it's something fun to keep in, uh, uh, keep with you for sure. Well, uh, obviously, I'm doing that by keeping the beer element in my career with uh, with manufacturing. <laughs> yeah, so, I, so I can't fault you on that. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's funny though, man, that you bring it up how it's impacted your career, and I love I love the career tie-in as well because it was. <laughs> I think when I interviewed for my job at Rockwell, one of the first things someone noticed on my resume, it's like, oh, cool, you were a bartender in college. Great. I'm like, I assumed you'd ask me about my engineering co-op first, but if my bartending experience is the thing that stands out, so be it. <laughs> yeah, I I will say as someone who just you know who's been on the hiring end too uh someone who's a, a fantastic communicator who can also learn a technical ex- uh, expertise 
uh, is is a jewel uh, where sometimes someone who's a high level technical may not actually be a great communicator and they still have you know a fantastic role, uh, but it may not be externally facing or, or, or customer facing. So uh, hospitality, like ha- being able to, you know, being in a serving position, I, I really think is a, a powerful tool for any resume. Uh, yeah. Just some props to props to that. Don't take it off your LinkedIn. I, I've oh, kept no, no, a wide, no, wide no. educator yeah, I, on I my LinkedIn. Say, at, at the very <laughs> least, it creates a great podcast intro. Oh, as yeah. Well. oh yeah. <laughs> well, I could talk about wine all day, but we're we're going to move move into uh, so 3D printing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 3D printing. So I guess that's the next question: is really how do you go from wine education to getting into prototyping, and then your engineering leadership roles, and where you are now um, as uh, as an applications engineering leader. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, 3D printing is unique because uh, right now, you know, when you talk about 3D printing, there's actually is education pathways. Like right now mm-hmm. in 2020, there's education pathways. Uh, when I got into additive manufacturing in the mid 2000s, so I, I personally um, entered in around 2007. Okay, it was just like if you if you were interested and, and kept the interest, you could you could get in because it was such a new field. In fact, we didn't call it 3D printing at that time. We called it uh, rapid prototyping. So the mm. machines you ran, like I ran selective laser sintering. I actually got spoiled when I started. I actually ran industrial versions of additive manufacturing from the very beginning. Mm. Uh, but we, we would call that an RP machine for rapid prototyping machine versus uh, a 3D printing machine. But at the same time, there's something really exciting happening. So I remember in 2007, um, you know, first off, you're talking about these these machines. So 3D printing machines, uh, what they do is they actually can take a lesser material. So a liquid resin or powder mm-hmm. uh, or a filament and fuse them together into the shape of a 3D model. Uh, and it's very different than anything that had existed before that. Uh, so uh, when we talk about traditional manufacturing, you're talking about uh, usually cutting away material or bending or forming a pre-blanked material to that shape. Or for for example, for injection molding, it's still formative because you're actually you actually cut the tool and mm-hmm. then you you know you put melted uh, material into that tool. It forms that final shape of the part. But 3D printing was kind of magical. You can just take this digital design and uh, throw it into a machine and it makes it. And yeah. it's, it, there's, you know, the barrier entry was very, very uh, small. But the machines at that time were really expensive. So in 2007, when I was running this SLS machine, it was like a million dollar platform uh, to run. And meanwhile, in parallel, uh, there was, I was actually working alongside a German graduate student and he bought this machine, or his project was on this machine called a RepRap. Mm-hmm. And he's like, look how cheap it is. It's $5,000. <laughs> and this thing extruded peanut butter and chocolate. This is 2007. So we yeah, were making... It sounds making, like the evolution of computers as well. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Massive things that used to have their own room that were way more expensive than the powerful MacBooks that you and I have sitting in front of us now. Oh, oh, oh absolutely. And and so uh, I just remember that because we were talking about this parallel pass. Like, wow, this is a million-dollar machine. And then look at this machine. And of course, at that time, again, we were making uh, chocolate and peanut butter pyramids and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, with with this machine, but it's like wow, it's about five thousand dollars, 
And now you still have that parallel path, but there's some convergence going on. So uh, what happened was the desktop 3D printing market, so the rep wraps and eventually the MakerBot got a, a lot of a lot of steam, mm-hmm. um, has moved up through the 2010s into into nowadays. And there's been a lot of competition on that desktop side. Yeah, uh, where price you could get you could get into three D printing for like a couple hundred bucks and get a printer. Mm-hmm. You may have to put it all together, but and, yeah. and tune it every time. But you could get one. Um, and then you still have these industrial machines that are these powerhouses mm-hmm. uh, that can produce uh, produce parts. And uh, there's so many ways of making those three D parts. And I would say like my expertise has definitely been on that applied side. So like the the applied industrial side of stuff. So I I you could give me a desktop printer and I can you know I can work my way around <laughs> it. But if you give me like an SLS machine, like that's magic. You know, that's something that you know I'm much more comfortable and familiar with. Yeah. Uh, just because of uh, where where I've lived. Yeah. Well, we're we're really going to be focused probably more on that industrial side today, mm-hmm. all things considered, since that's that's where our audience tends to gravitate. You know, I, I guess a, a starter question for this then, and you can answer this from a general perspective or an industrial perspective. Since this is our first 3D printing episode, what is one of the most common misconceptions around 3D? printing that you run into a myth that you just like to debunk from the get-go um there is there are two the one is the the hype train that 3d printing can do everything uh that's that's definitely uh the the hype train that you see which is that uh is a miracle tool that is like a star trek replicator and uh it's going to replace an industry Mm -hmm. you know what it has done is it's lowered the barrier to entry into the manufacturing industry by not requiring a highly specialized knowledge. Uh, but that being said, it is still best utilized by understanding the needs uh, of the machine and how and how it outputs parts. So there still is design guidance. It's just mm-hmm. different than what you as a mechanical engineer may have learned in school, which is usually around that that formative or subtractive process of you know cutting and for- cutting and molding. Uh, it's a it's a different set of rules that are much more flexible in some ways, but also you know work better when you adhere to some of the rules and other ways of design for manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the second one is that additive manufacturing, 3D printing, is actually an umbrella of technologies that create parts through an additive process. Uh, at Zometry, so we're an on-demand manufacturing platform, uh, we have eight different industrial additive processes available. Uh, through our website so you can upload a file mm-hmm. and you can get instant pricing you know on different processes and each one of these processes has its own material set underneath uh, yeah. the surface finish the output looks different uh, and they have their own strengths and their own trade-offs per that so uh, you know again like that's those two big things is you know the there are expectations for additive uh, that mm-hmm. are, so are getting more level but they're still hyped up you know you know if you can't do it anywhere else let's try additive and uh, but you know i try to level people off and to manage the expectations of the process and the other thing is that there you know there are different processes different platforms and different reasons why i may choose one or the other Okay. Well, I love, I love that you brought up two myths that we can debunk because yes, there's a certain type around it, but I like the definition around that uh, umbrella of technologies as well. You know, I was listening to another podcast that you were on, and this is kind of another level setting aspect where you're talking about, um, 
one of the prime applications for 3D printing, no surprise, is prototyping. You described it as like going from an analog to a digital camera. Can you go into that analogy a little bit? Because I think that'll be pretty helpful for painting the picture of, you know, one of the best applications for 3D printing right now. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, let's go back to the K1000 ca film camera that I was I, I was using when I felt artsy in, in college there. And, sure. and you had, um, you had, you know, if you loaded the film right, you got 26 shots. If you're clumsy, you got 24 shots, mm -hmm. uh, but it was very intentional and deliberate on when you took those shots and they didn't always come out right. One of the things that I noticed when I used a camera like that was that I was really conservative. I really held myself back uh, when I mm -hmm. took a picture. And what stinks sometimes is I wouldn't like take two shots of the same image, you know, hoping one comes out good. I take a shot and, and then I'd see what happens after it's exposed. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then digital cameras came out. And all of a sudden, it's like memory is practically free. And uh, you can really uh, nail a shot by making multiple iterations really quickly um, with, with that camera and, and making sure that you have something that's in focus and good. So you, it, it gave a lot more freedom by lowering that cost per frame, if you will, or per, per shot, like you would have with a, with a film camera. Traditionally, when you're prototyping, so if, with, if in a world without 3D printing, imagine, um, mm -hmm. in, a, in, in, in that world, you're usually doing something like model making, um, where you're scrapping something together by hand, um, you're, or you're building, uh, building parts using a traditional process that can require setup fees uh, and have a very high minimum cost to it because of the amount of labor going into just the initial execution of that part. So if you're like machining, uh, uh, machining or especially molding parts. Uh, so what Additive has done is taking that direct digital manufacturing. So now I have, I generate my file in CAD. So one thing all Additive manufacturing needs is that 3D CAD file because that's essentially the three-dimensional blueprint mm -hmm. of what the machine's going to path or scan its way to build, to build that part up. Uh, but that's it. You, mm -hmm. you take that 3D digital file, you uh, put this into build preparation software that's specific to that, to that printer platform. And essentially, the, a lot of that software does the work for you for the digital setup, and you press go. Mm -hmm. And again, this is very different than these uh, traditional processes where there's usually a lot more human interaction. The skill set is often in the user. So when you think about a machinist, like mm -hmm. there's a reason why... Uh, you know, the, the gray beard grizzled machinists have all this tribal knowledge and can just really get work done versus someone who's new. They're asking the gray beard how to do it. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a reason, uh, there's a reason why is because a lot of that talent comes with experience and, uh, experience and education and training, uh, for, for these professionals where with direct digital manufacturing through 3d printing, a lot of that talent is actually encompassed in the platform itself and the machine and software. So the barrier entry is at CAD. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, cheaper, faster, rapid, rapid shots of this. I worked in product development. Um, we actually, uh, I went from running selective laser sensing, which is this powder bed 3D printing platform. It actually uses a laser to fuse uh, nylon powder. Almost feels like flour when you're dealing with it. Mm -hmm. The laser fuses together to make rigid, uh, rigid parts in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I actually uh, moved into my career, my first career in in, uh, in engineering, 
uh, I did a Google map search of SLS in my area, which there was only one pop-up and I applied for any job there because that's where I wanted to go. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we moved, um, we moved into that to, to run, uh, run that machine and it was a rapid product development company. Yeah. So we took that digital aspect and it was just already ingrained. When I showed up there, they, there's SLS parts everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we would use those for, uh, you know, rapid iterations. We'd be running the machine nightly. And a lot of things, times we could do an approach where what we designed that day, we could test tomorrow. Yeah. And sometimes we get, what we designed that day, we could actually make small configurations of. Mm-hmm. We call it the shotgun approach where, say, I was making a hand grip. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the... Uh, uh, I know, very, you know, I, I was not a technical expert um, on, uh, you know, on, on ergonomics or anything, but we knew who our stakeholders were. Sure. So we had a hand grip and like a lot of times hand grips have a little kind of knuckle index, which is basically yep. something between your index finger and the rest of your fingers to kind of hold it, like show you where to hold it. Yeah, this is a great example yeah. for yeah. the manufacturers out there. I'm sure they're all yeah. familiar with hand, hand grips on the shop floor and things like that. It, exactly. <laughs> and so we didn't know where to put it. Like mm-hmm. we had, we had some, we had some things, but they all measured a little bit differently. And there are some ergonomics guides that we had to help mm-hmm. us kind of know, but we did just, we just did slight adjustments in how, how uh, pronounced it was. And as well as the height on the grip. And we did six grips in one night for this design that we were making. And essentially we're able to the next day provide that uh, to, um, to our stakeholder and they, they could go and kind of actually install it, handle it, and be like, mm-hmm. I like number four. And number yeah. and, and uh, you know, we started evolving off of number four mm-hmm. instead of saying, like, number one's the way to go because this is my, you know, my my film camera and this is the only chance I have. Like, yeah. we're able yeah, to actually do this rapid iteration. So that's kind of the power with digital manufacturing is that I can mm-hmm. do shot, shot, shot and actually get a better outcome. Like, I can prov- mm-hmm. provide a better outcome without uh, trying to be conservative and holding back because of, for example, lead time or financial uh, costs that may be prohibitive. Excellent example. One that I think will resonate with all the manufacturing leaders, whether they're in the office or on the shop floor that, that have worked with this before. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Steamchain.io. Steamchain is the machine-as-a-service company that's transforming the way end-users and equipment manufacturers collaborate, increase revenues, and grow together. Now, what is machine-as-a-service? Well, if you're familiar with other as-a-service business models, it works very similarly. Rather than pay the upfront cost of a piece of capital equipment, whether that's a case erector or a canning line or anything beyond that or in between, end users have the opportunity to pay for that equipment based on its usage and performance. This moves investment dollars from CapEx to OpEx and ties this investment to production output. The coolest thing is machine builders win as well. Through this performance-based financing model, now OEMs can cash in on the increases in throughput and quality that they deliver, generating ongoing post-sale revenue for their business. Steamchain's machine-as-a-service business model is one of the best solutions I've come across during my time hosting Manufacturing Happy Hour. And if you want to hear more, make sure to check out Episode 5, where we interviewed Steamchain's CEO and co-founder, Mike Cromachy. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain, and make sure to visit them at steamchain.io to learn how you can start working with them today. And now, back to today's episode. 
You know, I, I do. I have another question related to a different aspect of manufacturing and 3D printing. But there was something you said in there, and this goes back to a career question that I just have to ask on. You mentioned you were applying for like every SLS job out there, and you've been doing uh, rapid prototyping and 3D printing for over a decade now. You mentioned you got into it in 2007. A lot, a lot of our listeners, you know, some of them know where they want to go with their career. Some of them are still figuring. It out. I think we're all still figuring it out in some way. But what made you so certain that that this was the direction you wanted to go, and why have you stuck with it? Like, I'd love to hear just a little bit about that personal story as well. I, I would say seeking me for career advice is a little scary because, uh, <laughs> as you say, like, so Greg, I noticed that you have a business undergraduate, worked at a winery, and then somehow <laughs> ended up in engineering. Why did they hire you? And then, uh, and now you're you're a director of application engineering uh, and and external, obviously external communicator for for Zometry, you know, and. And so my path is definitely, uh, does, it's not directional. Uh, sure. uh, so, uh, but I did, I have followed my passions, right? So um, yeah. what, I, I know that, you know, strength has been communication, has been in technical knowledge. I, I, I have a good idea of looking at things, understanding how they work, like a, like a mechanical mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to, to, you know, I had opportunity at that time to kind of follow that passion. And in that case, I had a unique skill set. So mm-hmm. I knew how to run a machine that in 2007, nobody really, you know, understood how to run or like a very, very few did. And that was definitely in for the industry. By the way, full, full disclosure, when I joined the company that I, I joined before working in Sometry, I actually applied for electronics manufacturing specialist position. Okay. So I, I, it was the only job available. And I um, and it was someone who was going to be running on a pick and place machine uh, for electronics manufacturing because uh, there was a pick and place machine at this facility where I, uh, where I ended up working. Mm-hmm. And the and the uh, person interviewing me, I'm super thankful for him uh, uh, for giving me the opportunity to interview. He looked at me. He's like, "Why are you applying for this job?" <laughs> and I, I told him the truth. And uh, you know, and you saw my my passion in that. And he's like, well, you wrote a great cover letter. You know, you wrote, you, um, uh, you know, you show a lot of interest. He's mm-hmm. like, how about we do this? And I actually entered in uh, more in a flex technical position. So I was more of a technician level. Cool. And then I, I worked my way up. I think one of the things, you know, you talk about when you, when you, when you enter a company or under interest is there's always some, oh, something you want to do right out of college. And I did it. And I think everybody does it. You yeah. apply for your dream job. Yeah. And you don't get it accepted. <laughs> if you do, <laughs> you deserve it. But you apply for your dream job. And a lot of times those dream jobs are the ones that are extremely difficult, extremely competitive to get to. And and mm-hmm. honestly, you may not you really aren't experienced enough to probably take that job sure. job yet. Uh, so I think finding kind of like kind of finding the things that you're passionate about and working in positions where you want to grow and learn. And becoming a sponge is probably one more important was one of the most important things for myself as a uh, on a career path, versus saying like this is exactly what I do and I'm not going to I'm going to say no to everything else. So I actually joined on and I essentially broke out 3D printed parts. So yeah. I was dusty in the afternoon. I put together cable harnesses and assemblies in the morning. And every now and then I wrote proposals for uh, small business innovative research for for the team. So I just I was basically a advanced technical odd jobber uh, in a company. And, and, but what I was able to do was at least show, you know, my ability to interact with customers, my ability to 
you know, uh, mature and, and build a better business unit. So that rapid prototyping unit, I eventually, uh, within a year, was able to take it over and, and run it as kind of a small business within within the company. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I built the opportunity to prove myself versus trying, you know, versus versus rejecting something that I wasn't looking for. And it's, like I said, I'm not the best for career advice because I have a nonlinear path, but it was something that really was, uh, really was useful for my type of pathway is finding where I would like to be and kind of being okay without being on the bullseye and, and working my way towards that direction. Well, I'm going to give you, give you some kudos because I think you deserve a little more credit because I think that is phenomenal career advice because most careers aren't nonlinear. That was one of the first things that stuck out. Like not only are careers not nonlinear, but I love what you said, like you should pursue your dream job, but you know, a lot of times you're not ready for it right out of the gate. You got to get some other experiences that prepare you for it. And I think, especially for the younger audience that we have on here that might be listening, like you have time, like it doesn't happen to have to happen overnight. And there's some foundational skills you need to get. And not only that, but following your passions, but also know, knowing that you have a unique skill set that goes with that as well, learning things to differentiate yourself. So I thought that was a phenomenal career advice interlude right there. Um, but uh, I do want to get back to 3D printing as well, because I know you have more insights to share there too. Um, and we talked about prototyping, but the other thing that I think is on the minds of our audience and another, another line I heard for heard or saw in one of your other podcasts was, you know, manufacturing and real production is the new 3d printing frontier. So we talked about it from a prototyping standpoint, and that was a great example with the grips and trying out options one, two, three, four. That makes a lot of sense. But I think the next question on the mind of our audience might be, now, how does this work in, you know, at scale? Yeah, and absolutely. And not every single 3D printing process can scale or it will it takes a different approach to scale uh, those processes. Mm-hmm. Um, something to note from, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at production, I'm not just looking at the shape that you're making. Uh, you know, I'm also thinking about throughput. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think about the cost per unit. I think about how many of those units can I make per, you know, X amount of executable time, you know, so per week, per month, et cetera. And, uh, and obviously like, will the customer market accept it? And mm-hmm. these are three barriers that are still challenges in some ways for, for 3D additive manufacturing. And again, there's different technologies that get you a little bit closer in each one. Uh, but there's also, you know, there's also trade-offs to, to, to each process. Um, so one of the first things that we talk about is that the customer acceptance, because again, regardless of how I make it, will your customer like it? You know, will they will they will they take that? And in some cases, it's great if it's just an internal component. Sure, you know, mm-hmm. scratch it off the list. Does it function? You know, can I make enough of them uh, at the cost I need? That's that's going to be my barrier. But if it's a cosmetic pro- a project, a lot of times it's very difficult for additive to enter that uh, that field because we are so used to what's in front of you and I right now, plastic stuff mm-hmm. like. Plastic, like plastic ejection molded parts, um, their surface finish is analogous to the way that those those cavities in their molds are formed, which is subtractive manufacturing. So when you are uh, when you're subtractively manufacturing, we're using something like CNC machining. You're cutting away the material and leaving a smooth surface finish, and uh, and anything on that mold cavity, it's going to be reflected in that part there. So if I smooth the surface finish and then I bring it up to a high polish, that part molded in there is going to have a very high polish. 
And this is something that we use for mass production. We still should use it for mass production in a lot of places because it just makes sense to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also creates a paradigm, a mental model in a customer's head of what they expect of a final commercialized product. 3D printing, because it's building on a layer-by-layer basis, you very often do see um, layer lines or stepping that occurs when you're growing parts. So also, you know, we use the term growing, like, so you're not cutting parts, you're growing parts. Uh, and uh, cosmetically, that uh, that can create an issue where it may not it may not look like that injection board. It may not be that glossy, slick, or smooth, or it may not have that matte, uh, you know, clean finish like your your car dashboard has. And uh, and I think it's becoming more acceptable, uh, but it's also something that's a big barrier to entry when I think about an end use product. Mm-hmm. Now, things that are the future are, are happening right now. Uh, there are uh, there are post finishing options. Uh, mm-hmm. For for parts of not just painting, but actually like things like chemical vapor smoothing, immediate tumbling, which is significantly helping there. Uh, but it's uh, but again, those are unique to certain processes. Uh, so it's something I want to bring up because the very first thing you know, IoT or you go into any of these like electronics enclosures, you go to especially if you're trying to get into automotive, where mm-hmm. everything is you know everything is detailed and and uh, kind of like so anything external facing just has to look beautiful. Yeah, uh, it's very hard to enter just by the cosmetics alone. Let alone can I make a million of them? Sure. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So. So I have the so we have the cosmetics thing. Now it's, again, it's being tackled in some ways, but it's also it's just something that will always be on my mind when I think about will my customer accept this. So the next thing is cost, and I'm going to loop in that cost and output because they tend to go in the same way. A lot of uh, a lot of times with 3D printing, um, a lot of the cost has to go into essentially machine overhead. So mm-hmm. because I'm building parts in this layer by layer basis, this layer could be as thin as a sheet of paper. So mm-hmm. if you imagine like even like the like a mug in the mug in front of me here, if I mm-hmm. if I stacked how many sheets of paper, how many reams of paper would that be uh, before I get to the height of the mug? And there's time in de- in depositing that material or fusing it together. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, that overhead of my machine, uh, that that rate that it has, and that time it takes, oftentimes is the biggest cost driver. Uh, for uh, the the price of my parts, sometimes in you know sometimes it does become the material depending on different processes, but it's something to consider. Now the mm-hmm. advantage though is that although that may be a cross driver, so each part seems a little bit more expensive, uh, it actually still may have a unique um, uh, like a unique advantage over something like injection molding, where I have mm-hmm. this huge like higher dollar upfront fixed price so there's usually like you could usually see the curve that happens where uh you pay upfront injection molding for tooling and then it slowly moves uh to a lower price per part amortized when you start moving to hundreds or thousands of units where 3d printing typically starts low and moves just slightly slightly lower but it has like a lower barrier to entry. So you, t- you tend it. to have a different upfront costs. And so you, yeah. you have to look at your, your marketing, your production there. Nice. Um, so cosmetics, cost, and output, you said is the last yeah. one. Right? Yeah. Out- and output, the uh, the final thing there is there's different processes that uh, that can have a higher output. So I've run on uh, processes like laser sintering mm-hmm. and multi-jet fusion, which... Ha- like enjoy having neighbors in their build. Uh, so a build is basically the space in which I can create parts in my 3D printer. 
And uh, in in my build in SLS and a multi-jet fusion, I essentially have about a 13 by 13 by 23 inch rectangle of volume that I could throw parts from all different shapes and sizes uh, in. And I'm usually done between 20 to 30 hours. So mm-hmm. if I have a very small part, um, I may be able to put 300 plus parts into this build and be done in 20, 30 hours. If I have a large part, maybe it's five or six, and you know my throughput all of a sudden becomes five or six per machine per you know 20 hours, and it you know it, it doesn't have as, as much as much advantage to it. So when we talk about throughput, we're usually usually find that additive can do really well and competitive with molding technologies when it's going to be a smaller component. Uh, so something that is going to be like the size of my fist or smaller. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, something that in a process that can build a lot of parts at once, either that, or I make a lot of machines building one yeah. part at a time. That's, that's well, the other thing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this makes some intuitive sense. You know, you're thinking if you're doing 3d printing, of course, smaller parts, you're going to be able to get through them quicker than, than large parts. I think this provides some great perspective, you know, and I think the cosmetics example, especially how you related that, that back to a car and automotive, like, I mean, the precision on those parts that you see in your cars, like you're going to see those lines, like you mentioned. So, you know, this is, I'm going to kind of combine a couple of questions to one because i'd love to kind of take the flip side of an industry where you think um you know is ripe for this or where you've already seen it's ripe for this maybe in the context of one of the coolest examples of a part that you've seen 3d printed like one of your favorites that just jumps out at you well i'll put it i'll put 3d printing of metals uh, because okay. actually a lot of folks don't know 3D print, print you can actually 3d print metals uh, mm-hmm. but in the aerospace industry in particular uh, you have an amazing return on investment if you do two things with your parts: reduce its weight and reduce the count of parts in your assembly. Mm, okay. And one of these magical things you talk about the design for three D printing. In three D printing, you can put different features together in a way that you couldn't naturally combine or require a lot of extra secondary processing and work in these more traditional methods. Uh, so I've seen an adoption of metal additive manufacturing in aerospace uh, more than a lot of fields because it has such a good return on investment. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this is where like, if there's a video, there'll be an asterisk above my head, which is uh, <laughs> aerospace manufacturing requires a lot of qualifications. We know we are like Zometry's AS9100 shop and we definitely know what yeah. is, what's required uh, for, you know, when we have a lot of uh, aerospace companies that, you know, well, they'll specify if it's a non-flight or flight part. The second that we see flight on it, it's like, you know, like a, you know, exclamation point goes above your head. And it's like, let's take a look, you know, let's take yeah. a look at what it, what it needs because the qualification is still challenging uh, with additive manufacturing. And that's a whole other podcast there. Uh, yeah. but, what, but the advantages are still there. And there's a lot of investment going on in aerospace because of the ability to unify multiple parts of assembly into a single part, often optimize it. So optimize that topology um, or create, do something called generative design, which is a way where you can just say the physics that are needed to make something function. And then mm-hmm. the computer designs the rest of it and you use the freeform uh, ability of 3D printing to, to create that object in reality. Um, but I, I do see that adoption there. I'm yeah. also excited about uh, polymers. Like I said, we were talking automotive, okay. we're talking these IOTs mass configuration is there on the polymer side. So I think you have a, a great advantage, especially in uh, small devices where you can build to more just-in-time manufacturing where you may not ever need to tool up um, yeah. because of that. 
but like I said, there's there's the high value, highly custom metal parts mm-hmm. in, in aerospace. But I'm also starting to see that market really shift towards this uniquely purpose designed parts uh, that are going to be more in the around the some they're usually surrounding electronics somehow is where I see them. Yeah. Well, another set of great examples there talking about metals, you know, and the and qualifying the aerospace spot as well. And then polymers too. You know, I think this has been an excellent, you know, I'm glad we've gotten a little technical, but I think it's been a great (laughs) high level overview as well too. I think this is like the right level for a manufacturing happy hour audience. And, you know, for those of you listening today, hit us up on Twitter, like with any comments, things you want to hear more, because like you said, Greg, I mean, we could go so many different directions with this. This is just kind of episode one we'll see uh we'll see what the the crew wants to hear more of but uh either mfg happy hour tag me on that on twitter and your zometry greg correct yep. so x-o-m-e-t-r-y so zometry with an x uh so zometry greg or zometry Z- uh, is also our twitter twitter handle and uh definitely reach out we always love talking technical and i also want to note like we do a lot of spec machining we do a lot of sheet metal a lot of injection mm-hmm. molding uh, so when I talk about additive and strengths and weaknesses, I'm not just trying to sell a particular processor machine because we we look at it, we cast a, a very wide net. So we have a very good understanding of where it lives and how it enhances that product development or that manufacturing uh, need. Uh, and we still, uh, you know, fully embrace uh, what's called traditional manufacturing, even though it's not going anywhere, uh, you know, where, you know, for these for these other processes. So we have a very agnostic view of manufacturing tech. And I'm and I'm going to give you another opportunity to share a little bit more about Zometry before we wrap up. But since you've been on so many podcasts before, <laughs> my last um, 3D printing related question is: What is one question about 3D printing out of all the things you've done before that you wish you've like that you haven't gotten yet that you wish someone would just ask you? So the thing I usually plug people to ask is uh is it's it's actually what like what comes first cad or 3d printing mm, okay and and the reason why i say that is 3d printing's barrier to entry is cad design and something that happens is you can buy that 3d printer for 200 bucks and then the next question you'll say on a forum is stl question mark which is the file format used by a lot of 3d printers mm-hmm. uh, because to get the most out of this technology, you do need to have access to CAD software. And that's something I've, you know, I'm very passionate. I'm a, I'm a CAD junkie myself here. And I think it's just really interesting to see when a digital technology comes out that absolutely needs a 3D file. I've watched the market, uh, the barrier to entry for CAD design reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce to where there's a lot of super capable free programs out uh, right now. And even the price of professional programs have uh, have lowered. And some of these cool 3D printing specific things like generative and topology are actually becoming more accessible too uh, in a low cost CAD market. So uh, the more capable software becomes, even the existing technology, like machines that we have today are gonna to become just so much more capable because that software is gonna catch up to it. Like, I think right now, like it's not, can the printer do it? It's can the software make it? And I mm. think that's pretty interesting. 
great final point to end on with uh, with 3D printing. Before we wrap up, you know, I want to learn a little bit more about zometry, and we'll we'll also do this from a manufacturing happy hour standpoint. Back to your uh, your wine experience. You know, we're recording this in December 2020. If uh, if we were having a conversation over wine right now, first question of of my two part question is, what kind of wine would we be drinking? Oh man, uh, so it depends on the season, of course, obviously. Well, we got, uh, but, yeah. it's, it's winter right now, so let's go with winter. <laughs> so I, I'm, uh, you know, wintertime, uh, Virginia. Uh, you know, I'm looking. For, you know, I think we make some really good cab francs or petite verdots there. Uh, something's hearty, fruit forward. Uh, um, you know, good coloration. Uh, you know, maybe a maybe a mild acidity to that. Uh, but it, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I'd probably. I think cab franc right now is uh, is my go-to. All right, so let's say we're kicking it over a couple ca- uh, cab francs, and uh, and you know whether it's me or someone else is like you know, hey, I know you work at Zometry. I know you guys do manufacturing as a service. I've been listening to this podcast for thirty minutes. I've I've learned bits and pieces about you, but how do you simplify what Zometry does if you're having a glass of wine with them? Oh yeah, so Zometry makes it super easy to get custom manufacturing made. So we make a ton of parts and we offer over a dozen different manufacturing technologies on our site. Uh, you could actually click, drag, and upload a 3D file directly to zometry.com's instant quoting engine. Uh, it'll give you pricing in seconds. And it's not just making the shape, it's making your parts. So if you're a designer or engineer, or if you're a manufacturing company that just needs to get some work done because you're at capacity, or maybe mm-hmm. you don't have that capability, you can use Zometry to upload that part, put in your tolerances, put in your uh, you know threads, tap holes, surface finishes, whatever your requirements you have, you'll see that pricing and lead time update automatically. You change your quantities and it's like Amazon. You, you click and buy and we take care of the rest. And so, you know, if you're looking to, if you're a buyer, supplier, engineer, you have this click and buy experience now for something that's traditionally multi days of getting RFQs back. Mm-hmm. And then we, we fulfill that via a vetted supplier network. Uh, so we're actually connected with over 5,000 suppliers globally. 3,000 of those are domestic in the U.S. And we're able to do a high diversity of work uh, through essentially a distributed manufacturing platform. Uh, and so it's, it's really exciting because you could give me 100 jobs today and I can start them all tonight. And it's it's something that you couldn't do with any traditional shop. So it's just it's a really unique technology-driven platform that gives us uh, both the the access and the experience for so many manufacturing technologies. Love that. Well, if you're looking for custom parts, if you're looking for quick quoting, I will be linking up to Zometry in the show notes, Zometry.com. That's Zometry with an X, not a Z, just like Xylophone. You know, this has been a lot of fun today, Greg. I enjoyed uh, having you as our inaugural. 3d printing expert for the show and uh, hopefully we get to do this again in the future i'm happy to be back anytime thanks so much thanks everyone we'll catch you again next time hey that was fun and thanks to greg's wine tips you know what to drink for the rest of the winter but in all seriousness if you want to connect with greg or if you want to connect with zometry you can tweet greg over at zometry greg that's x-o-m-e-t-r-y greg on twitter whether it's a wine question or an additive manufacturing question i'm sure he'd be happy to chat about it uh for your more specific manufacturing and additive manufacturing needs talk to zometry as well on twitter x-o-m-e-t-r-y that's x as i said like in xylophone no Z. But rather than make this complicated, just head over to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 
37 to access the show notes for today's show. That'll uh, take you to everything you need to connect or access the resources, as I said, that we discussed today. Before we wrap up, I want to give one more shout out to our friends over at Steam Chain, the machine as a service company. If you're listening to this and you're an end user, these guys can help you pay for equipment based on performance. So if you're purchasing capital equipment in 2021 or beyond, make sure to check them out. If you're an equipment manufacturer and you hate losing jobs due to price, well, Steam Chain's performance-based payment models can help you out as well. Not only that, but if your customers are paying on performance, that means you've just built in an ongoing revenue stream. So whether you're an equipment manufacturer or an end user, make sure to reach out to Steam Chain at steamchain.io or listen to them here on this podcast over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain. And with that, that is it for this week. Thanks for sticking around. We've got more cool topics coming up. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you back here real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.